Well, folks, it, uh, it is the presidential election season. It is definitely upon us now, isn't it? And so uh, we are going to be subjected for the next untold months to uh, nothing but presidential campaign rhetoric. And it, this year seems to be particularly brutal, uh, somewhat of a cage match, it appears, as uh, one candidate after another uh, stands to tell us why they are great and why all of their opponents are bums and should not receive our votes. Right? Isn't that basically how it goes? And they promise us that single-handedly they are going to resolve the nation's problems if we will give them our vote in November. It's really quite incredible. Uh, one is going to make America great again. And the other is going to make America something else. I can't remember what it was. Uh, I remember a couple of elections ago that someone else was going to keep the oceans from rising and heal the planet. And so uh, there have been all kinds of claims that people have made if they will only receive our vote, that they will take care of the problems that face us. There is no lack of self-confidence in the human heart. But in reality, it's, it is completely unfounded. I mean, when you think about the weakness of the human condition, the frailty of humanity, and then you, you measure it against the words of self-confidence, the attitudes of self-confidence that we see displayed all around us, it's uh, staggering. The old English proverb remains true. There is many a slip betwixt the cup and the lip. That which seems sure has a way of not coming true. Well, what is merely foolish in the realm of business or sports or politics is positively devastating in the spiritual realm. There is no place where... I think greater than that, where, where our dependence is more obvious. The reality is that we cannot reach inside of the human heart. We cannot even reach inside of our own heart. So we have this self-confidence, and yet we are so weak, so frail. I think probably more often than many of us recognize We live the spiritual life in the power of the flesh. Often, I think, for all of us, we attempt things for God without dependence on the Spirit of God. And then we crash and burn, don't we? We crash and burn. We come up short. I can't tell you how many times through the years I have had people tell me, and, then, and normally this comes from the younger generation, but I've had people tell me with regard to certain entertainment choices that they make that they will say that these things don't affect me. I can watch what I want. I can listen to what I want. And I can, uh, in dating relationships, I can kind of do what I want. And it doesn't really affect me spiritually. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 
I've had others say to me that, uh, and this tends to be the older generation, that missing church doesn't really affect my spiritual life. You know, I can miss for a while, and, and it really doesn't affect me that much. But, beloved, it does. Carol and I have missed for three weeks. And I can tell you, it, uh, it has affected us. It, it was difficult for us. That's why the writer of the Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, 25, not to forsake our assembling together. It's essential for our spiritual health. It is self-confidence misplaced that thinks that being absent from church doesn't really affect you. Others probably wouldn't say it, but kind of runs in the background is the idea that emulating the goals and values of the world won't dim my passion for Jesus. I can pursue Jesus and the brass ring. But James says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? That you can't have both? You can't serve God and mammon? Or even... And I would confess from my own life, the being bold for Christ sometimes and then being a mouse at other times. How does that work? How is it that I can stand in the pulpit and be a lion and then later that afternoon when I'm face to face with my neighbor, I'm a mute mouse and I don't say anything? How does that happen? And I know I'm not alone. I know you can identify with these things. It is the human condition. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. As we return to our studies through Matthew's gospel, Matthew 26, we'll be looking this morning at verses 30 to 35. Matthew chapter 26 verses 30 to 35. We're going to be looking at the Apostle Peter. And the Apostle Peter is an interesting character, isn't he? He's a man of great passions. He's a man of great highs and lows. He's a man who seems to burn hot and cold. He's a man that I think most of us at one level or another, can identify with. This morning, as we look at this section in 30 to 35, we're going to see one of his lows. We're going to look at one of Peter's low points. And as we're doing that, through the snapshot here of the life of Peter, we're going to be reminded of the devastating consequences of spiritual self-confidence, because that's really what's going on here for Peter. Peter is confident, self-confident. And it's going to produce probably the lowest point in his entire life. As we look at these verses, 30 to 35, I, I've kind of organized it with a four-part outline, just some simple points to hang our hats on as we go through this. So we're not going to have as much time as... as, um, as we could hope for in this section, so we're going to need to move through some things quickly. But 
But just to dive in here, in the beginning, in verses 30 to 32, the first point of the outline is that Jesus is, I'm calling it Jesus' confusing announcement. Jesus' confusing announcement. Matthew says that after singing a hymn, that is following the, the end of the Passover meal, where Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper, and then it says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. They went out to the Mount of Olives after singing a hymn, a hymn ending the, the uh, Passover meal. Now, it's important, I think, to set a little context here as to what's going on. Because if, if you're a sharp reader of the Gospels, you might remember that uh, John's Gospel reports the events that, that are about to be narrated here in a somewhat different order than Matthew does. In fact, um, between the gospel writers, there seem to be two distinct narrations of Peter's denial or or the prophecy of Peter's denial. Two separate accounts. Matthew placing it here, the warning to Peter uh, and his defection while they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. That is, the, the, the Passover meal has ended, they've sung a hymn, they go out. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives, maybe even arriving there at Gethsemane. And Jesus makes this prediction to Peter. But John places the same, uh, what appears to be the same account in a different place uh, where it, it occurs in the upper room. So on the surface, it seems like, wow, we have two separate accounts here and, and they even appear to be in conflict to each other. So what do we do about all of that? How do we fit it all together? So quickly, and if you have my notes, you have it all laid before you here, and you can kind of trace it through on your own. But let me just tell you this to begin with. There are two separate occasions. I think that's the best way to harmonize the events that occur here, is that Jesus actually tells Peter that you're going to deny me on two separate occasions. The one recorded by John, the earlier occasion, and the one recorded by Matthew and Mark, the later occasion. I think Luke, actually, in his narrative, follows John. Turn to, um, to uh, John chapter 13. Let me just quickly walk you through uh, the scenario, the events of that, of that night. In John 13, verses 27 to 30... After Jesus dips the sop, right, and he hands it to Judas, says Satan enters in, and Jesus dismisses Judas. Basically says, what you, what you do, you know, do quickly. And Judas gets up, and, and he leaves the upper room. He leaves the Passover feast. He leaves the Passover feast before the third cup, before the institution of the Lord's Supper. So he's not there for that. He has headed out. And he is headed out to find the the authorities to come back and to arrest Jesus. Following Judas' departure, the disciples themselves, uh, according to Luke, they get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest. And And it appears that the source of the argument has something to do with how they've been seated around the table. You know, who gets to sit where at the dinner table? If you've had children, you probably can identify uh, perhaps with some of that. But there's an argument that breaks out among them as to to who is the greatest among them. At that point, Jesus speaks to them about his coming departure here in John uh, 13 and uh, verses 31 to 38. 
He tells them that he is, that he is leaving them. And, and basically what he's saying is, I'm going to be, I mean, he doesn't say it this way, but what he's talking about is I'm going to go to be crucified and, and so forth. Peter responds to him, of course, and, and says, uh, Lord, where are you going? Peter answered, and, or Jesus answered and said, where I go, you cannot follow. You'll follow me later and so forth. At that point, Peter declares his unbending allegiance to Jesus. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I, can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. So Jesus says, I'm leaving. And Peter says, you know, I will, I will lay down my life for you. I, I have complete obedience to you, complete allegiance, complete commitment to you. Jesus responds to Peter here in verse 38 and said, will you lay down your life for me, Peter? Truly, truly, I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. So Jesus says to Peter here in the upper room at this point that, Peter, you are going to deny me and you're going to deny me before the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times. The conversation ends, I think, at that point, and the Lord institutes, Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. They, they partake of the third of the cups and they, they're finishing the Passover meal and, and Jesus transforms it into the Lord's Supper. Following that, Jesus speaks to them about the, in chapter 14 of John's Gospel, about the coming of the Spirit. He gives them that extended teaching about the coming of the Spirit. And then verse 31, it says that they leave abruptly. Jesus says, at the end of verse 31, chapter 14, Jesus says, get up, let us go from here. I think it's as if Jesus has almost a, a, a clock in his head, and he's been kind of counting down the time. He knows Judas has left. He knows how long it will take for Judas to get to, uh, to the authorities, to gather the guard, to come back and to arrest him. And he's been kind of keeping mental math going on here. And he says, listen, we need to get out of here. So they get up and they leave. The rest of John there, 15, 16, 17, occurs uh, along the way as they proceed to the Garden of Gethsemane. So they leave the upper room hastily before Judas can get back and and arrest them. And they head to the Mount of Olives and to a private garden called Gethsemane that is located on the western flank of the garden. There, and now back to Matthew, there, when, when they arrive there, Jesus again announces his departure and the scattering of the apostolic band. And that's the account that Matthew has for us. So I think that's how you put the two together. Okay? So, Matthew 26, 31. There, I believe, uh, somewhere on the flank of the Mount of Olives, perhaps uh, as they first enter Gethsemane, Jesus, then Jesus said to them, verse 31, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. I think there's got to be little doubt here of the heaviness of Jesus' heart in all of this. He is headed to the cross, and his disciples are bickering about who's the greatest. They're proclaiming their allegiance to him. He informs them again of his death and his betrayal and his resurrection. He's trying to to prepare them for what Run Writer called their dark night of doubt. And they want nothing to do with it. They are dull of hearing. They, they, they cannot and they will not uh, listen and receive what he is trying to say to them. 
I think it's an unimaginably awful time for Jesus. All alone. All alone. Strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. The whole enterprise, at a human level at least, is going to come unwound. It's going to come unwound. But there's a a bright light here as well in the midst of the darkness of all of this. And, And it is in verse 32. Despite the, the dire prediction of Zechariah 13 and verse 7, right, that you strike the shepherd and the, and the sheep are scattered, despite that dire prediction, there's a bright ray of hope in this. And the, and the bright ray of hope is for both Jesus and the disciples. And notice it here in verse 32. He says, after I have been raised, so it's not the end for me, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. What he means is, is, is that death is not going to be the end of it for me. The scattering is not going to be the end of it for you. We are going to, to reunite in Galilee. We're going back to the beginning. Back to the place where it all began. There I will meet with you. So in the darkest of moments, there is the bright ray here. And beloved, it is the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. And it will be the same spirit who who works in the lives of these scattered disciples to to transform them into into some really amazing individuals when you think about it, right? How bold they become. These are the ones who who turn the world upside down. These are the ones, according to Acts chapter 4 and and verse 13, that that the uh, the leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin, they say, you know, these are uneducated guys. Where do they get all of this? How are they so bold? And then they go, oh, yeah, I remember they were with Jesus. So it really is pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. But at this moment, it's very confusing to them, to the disciples. Very, very confusing. So Peter responds, secondly, with his presumptuous promise in verse 33. I mean, you've you got to feel the Lord's heart in this, I think. Oh, Peter, why are you so dense? Peter said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. That is a presumptuous promise. Peter insists, right, that above all others, he will remain loyal. You can depend on me, Lord. I am dependable. No matter what happens, they can all leave you. I will never leave you. Evidently, Peter doesn't see himself as one of the sheep who will be scattered, right? According to the prophecy of Zechariah. Peter sees himself in a different place. He is not self-aware. He's not able to recognize, I think, or admit his, his propensity to desert and deny Jesus. He's just, it's, it's beyond his realm of possibilities. It's outside his comprehension. I would never do that. I, will n- I would never deny Jesus. That's self-confidence. Peter sees himself as strong, as loyal, as committed, spiritually capable of handling whatever might come his way. They may all leave you, Lord, but you can count on me. I'll be there. 
best friends. I mean, after all, it was just a few months earlier, according to John 6, when uh, Jesus' Galilean campaign, Galilean ministry collapses, right? At the end of John 6, all the disciples leave him. Jesus turns to, them, to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave me too? And Peter busts out and he said, well, where would we go, Lord? You, you, know, you are the ones that uh, have the words of life. We would never leave you. And that's Peter. Verse 34, Jesus' stunning prediction And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Truly, pay attention. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter, have you heard this before? No, I guess uh, maybe I didn't. Yeah, actually, you have. I've told you this already. Jesus tells Peter, listen, not only will you desert me along with the others, not only are you part of the sheep who will be scattered when the shepherd is, is struck, but beyond that, Peter, you will go so far as to deny me three times. All will leave me. You will deny me. You will deny me three times. That is stunning. That is a stunning prediction. And the reason it's stunning, beloved, is because what Jesus had said to all of them earlier, back in, recorded in Matthew chapter 10, I turn you there, verse 32. Jesus is talking about what it means to be a disciple and not to fear man, right? But to, but to fear God. And then Jesus says this, Matthew 10 and verse 32. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Peter, before a rooster crows, you will three times deny me. You will commit the sin that, according to Matthew 10, could lead one to be cut off from God. Beloved, what do we make of that? What do you make of all of that? I mean, is it safe to deny Jesus? Is it ever acceptable to deny Jesus? I won't ask you to raise your hands, but have you ever denied Jesus? I have. So is it ever safe? Is it ever acceptable? The short answer is no. No, it's not. 
All denial of Jesus is sin. All denial is sin. And sin is never safe. And sin is never acceptable. But the hope that lies in the midst of an incredibly dark reality here is that Jesus has died to forgive the sins of his people, including the sins of denial. Beloved, if it came down to, if I deny Jesus, then I'm out, then it's over, what hope would there be for any of us? Who could stand? That's why the Apostle Paul, when he he speaks to this issue in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and, and verses 11 and following, he says it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. There are faithless acts that the people of God commit. There are those moments in time where we we fail to stand for Christ. When we don't speak for Christ. There is even the possibility that we might, in a moment of weakness, deny Christ. Or in a moment of overconfidence, deny Christ. Peter did. But Peter was not cast off by God. Peter was not cast off by God. The end of John's gospel, John narrates Peter's restoration. Peter goes on to be a a pillar and a leader in the church. In the book of Acts, Peter Peter writes his epistles. So how do we reconcile Peter's denial with Jesus' words about, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before the Father? How do I put all that together? I think the answer to put all of that together is that Jesus is speaking about a life that is a continual and perpetual denial of him. If that be true, then one is not his disciple. If one's life is a living contradiction to Christ, then you are not his child. No matter what you might say. But for his children... Who do fail, Jesus provides forgiveness. So, does that mean that it doesn't really, it's not that big a deal if I don't stand up for Christ? Is it not that big a deal if I adopt certain lifestyles that are opposed to Christ? Make decisions that are contrary to the gospel? Is it no big deal? Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Because, listen, life is lived one step at a time. Life is lived one step at a time. And, and it's never wise and it's never safe to, to, to deny Christ or to take our denials of Christ lightly or to say that, you know, it doesn't really matter. It does matter. We are called to be faithful. 
And when we're not faithful, we've sinned. And we need to repent of that sin. And we need to, we need to, to call out to God uh, for our forgiveness, the restoration of our relationship, and to, and to trust in the gospel and the, and the atonement of Jesus Christ to cover that sin too. Lest our faithlessness become a pattern of life. And then Matthew 10, 32 and 33 is a terrifying warning. There's another point of harmonization in this account I think that we should talk about. That's the difference between Mark's record of it in Mark 14 and Matthew's record of it here in Matthew 26. And it has to do with how many roosters crowed. Okay. Some of you are going, what? Others of you are thinking, okay, I've been waking, I've been waking up at night. Waiting for you to get here. I'm here. So what's the deal? Mark says two roosters. Matthew says one. So which is it? Well, let's talk for a moment. The Romans divided the, um, what we would call the night into four watches. Four three-hour watches of the night. The first began at 6 p.m., and ran until 9 p.m., then 9 p.m. to 12 p.m., 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., or 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., thank you, 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Those are the four watches of the night. Each watch of the night was given a name. So the nine, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. watch of the night was called evening. The 9 p.m. to 12 a.m. or 12 midnight watch of the night was called midnight. Interestingly enough, the third watch of the night, 12 a.m. to 3 a.m., was called cock crow. It was called cock crow. And then 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. was called morning. So we had evening, midnight, cock crow, morning. The events that, are, that Jesus are predicting here are going to occur in the third watch of the night. The cock crow. And I think what's going on here is, is that Matthew is, is recording Jesus as he spoke generally of this time. Mark is recording Jesus' specific statement with regard to the events. So before the cock crows, well, the rooster crows, when, when Matthew records that, is, a, is just a reference to before the end of this cock crow period of time. Mark, as opposed, uh, records Jesus' actual uh, specific prediction, which is before two roosters crow. Okay? So I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's uh, the tension between one rooster crowing and two roosters crowing. I think it's, it's harmonized by speaking of the general time and the specific events that occurred near the end of that general time. Okay. So cock crow didn't necessarily end when the first rooster crows. I mean, you know, the rooster's clock might be off a little bit, right? It could be 2.50 or something. I mean, in the wee hours of the morning, I think many roosters would be crowing, don't you think? 
Hence its name, Cockrow. So, what's the point? The main point is, is the same for both of them. What Jesus is saying to him, Peter, Truly I say to you, this very night before the wee hours end, you will deny me three times. If Jesus is speaking to him somewhere around midnight, then what he is saying to Peter is that, Peter, before a few more hours pass, you will deny me three times. You are so self-confident. You are so sure of your fidelity. And I'm telling you, within a few hours, Peter, you're going to deny me. How far you will fall. Flip over to verse 69. 69 to 75, and you, and you see it happen. Notice verse 75, and Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter, you're so self-confident. Look how Peter responds to this. It is stunning to me. If it wasn't for my own human nature and the weakness of my own faith. Jesus says, Peter, before a few more hours, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter says to him, verse 35, even if I have to die with you, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Not to be outdone, all the other disciples said what? Yeah, me too. Me too. We'll all die with you. Peter's confident assertion here. Staggering. He's unfazed, he's unhumbled by Jesus' prediction. He even becomes more insistent on his fidelity. They're all self-deceived. They all think their personal strength, their commitment to Jesus is unassailable. Nothing will throw us off. They so underestimated the power of sin and temptation and intimidation. Now, some might say, well, yeah, this is all because uh, this is before Pentecost, right? This is before the coming of the Spirit. The Spirit is not indwelling them permanently like he does after Pentecost. And, and of course they gave up, you know, because uh, without the power of the indwelling Spirit, you know, no one can stand. Hmm. Well, then what's your excuse? What's well, mine? I mean, beloved, listen, right? Even, the, even the, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God does not guarantee my spiritual fidelity in each and every circumstance in life. And it doesn't guarantee yours either. There's another incident in the life of Peter that I think reminds us of this, just how even 
following Pentecost, how susceptible we all are. Paul records it in Galatians chapter 2. Right? Galatians 2. There, there Peter, he's in Antioch, right? He's the pillar of the church. He's there in Antioch. And, and, and the Gentiles are, and, and the Jews who have now embraced Christ are dining together. But the Judaizers come down from Jerusalem and they, and they criticize Peter. And they say, what are you doing eating with these Gentiles? You know, they're unclean and impure. And, and Peter goes, you're right. And he breaks the table fellowship. And Paul calls him out. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul just flat out, you know, calls him out. Not privately, publicly. Recorded in Scripture for all of us to read, for all of eternity. Peter, screwed up again. So where does the spiritual strength come from to stand? How do we stand? How do we stand? The power comes from the Holy Spirit of God as we recall and believe the gospel. That's where spiritual power comes from. It is the Holy Spirit of God as we believe and recall the gospel. That is the opposite of spiritual self-confidence. The opposite. Paul says, right, that he is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But my problem is that I forget it. Or I doubt it in the moment. And I don't forget it like, you know, oh, wow, I never remembered that. It's, it's more like my father's birthday. <laughs> I know what it is, but sometimes it, you know, just eludes me. Beloved, to the extent we we fortify our hearts and minds with the truth of the gospel, we access the power of God, and then we can stand firm. We can speak for Christ in in that moment of high intimidation. But to the extent that we forget it, we, we allow it to slip from our grasp. In that moment in time, we are, we are living in spiritual self-confidence. Where I've got this. You know, it's a TV ad, right? I think it's for insurance or something. There's that guy. He's like, he's got everything. You know what I'm talking about? Until the tree falls on his car and he says, I ain't got that. Yeah. Some illustrations are bombs and that one was a bomb. <laughs> but we kind of say, I got that. But, but when we do that, what, what we're doing is we're setting ourselves up for a fall. We're setting ourselves up for a fall. We don't got it. Spiritual disaster awaits us when we are self-confident and the gospel becomes elusive. Let's pray. Father, one of the reasons we gather here each and every week is so that we can remind ourselves of the gospel. Because we, we are a forgetful people. Our faith is weak. We are prone to, to wander. We're prone to, to doubt or, or forget. So we need each other. We need to sing about the gospel to each other. 
We need to read the scripture with each other. We need to, to talk about the gospel with each other. Father, we need to celebrate the gospel together at the Lord's table. These means of grace that you have given to us to strengthen us is the path by which we can stand firm. I thank you that you are merciful. I thank you that sin is forgiven in Christ. I thank you that we can always repent and come back. And like the prodigal father, you will run to meet us. That is the glory of Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.